This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. L.A. Dixon is a writer, academic, and high school history and science teacher specializing in critical thinking. Will join us to discuss whether Steven Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, contributes or detracts from the secular humanist cause. Please join me in welcoming Linda to our meeting today. Linda. I'm going to ask you this question, and also with my students, I... You don't have to put your hand up or anything. You can do it in your head or not. I always say to them, you're in control of your own mind. I can't tell you what to do, what to think. But anyway, I'm still going to ask you. Uh, Okay. How many people here want to say they're optimists? Pessimist? Anyone claiming to be a realist? As you may know, Steven Pinker is not only declaring himself to be an optimist, he wants you to be one too. In fact, Stephen wants you to be happy about the world in which we live. So much so that he's written 1,200 pages to try to convince you. In his latest book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, Pinker makes some compelling claims, or compelling arguments, sorry, for uh, reason, science, and humanism. Many of these are beautifully told, perfectly written statements, and they work as such. Progress, not so much. At least, not the brand he's selling. My aim is to show you some significant problems that argument faces. Of those claims, he does represent, well, arguably, the most important have to do with science, especially the one about science being humanity's most successful attempt at acquiring knowledge. No, my charge here today is not that Pinker overstates the case for science, as some of his critics say, but rather that his many other claims and conclusions do not themselves meet the standards of science, or even, for that matter, reason and logic a lot of the time, which happen to be his own stated standards. The question, therefore, is not whether... Pinker has the right to say whatever he wants, that should be a given. The question is whether Pinker is logically and and rationally entitled to say many of the things he does, given his claim about approaching it all scientifically. So my aim is to raise certain difficulties without myself making any specific commitments to any opposing view, say, 
the one at the other end of a false dichotomy, again, against which so much of his argument seems to turn. Because in order to refute the claim that the world is getting undisputedly better for humans, there is no requirement to make another claim that things are getting worse. Raising the complexities that are missing from someone's optimism argument in no way commits one to any notion of returning to some halcyon days. And the burden of proof is on the one making the claim. Surely to settle for less rigorous standards obscures the knowledge we do have. My other aim is to look at the problems with championing or promoting the Enlightenment as a whole. I want to raise problems with that, with again, without myself making another claim, dissing the whole movement. And so I'm going to try, I'm going to try to make these points while narrowing myself to a couple of disciplinary strands to, to those which I know best, namely those having to do with uh, global poverty and uh, inequality and, and cultural imperialism, which should be sufficient because from this vantage point, I believe we, we see the whole vista of the argument and all its implications. So let's look at some of his claims. Pinker's ambition, using a number of graphs and uh, other stats, is to show with these numbers how humanity is progressing, not only morally, as he tried to do in his last book, but materially due, he says, to the expansion and leveraging of the goals of the Enlightenment. Now, for those who aren't in a position to know better, which is likely most people, they may not realize these are very large claims to make. And though Pinker certainly appears as someone in command of the numbers, as any first-year student of statistics knows, numbers on graphs are not necessarily as straightforward as they seem. And yet, much of his argument seems to rest, as far as I can see, on the basis of even one graph. And so I, I'm going to narrow myself mostly to even that one graph. Now, what graph is this? Well, it's the one put out by the World Bank showing the percentage of people living in extreme poverty worldwide to have dropped considerably, showing the percentage of people living in extreme poverty to have de decreased dramatically especially in the last couple of decades, which currently the World Bank defines as living on less than $1.90 a day. Now, for starters, these things, global poverty no less, are difficult problems. And to suppose this kind of graph gives us enough information on which to base such a very large claim is to suppose that the numbers are comprehensive. They aren't. Be missing... In this graph is the fact that the reduction in extreme poverty has been mainly driven by China and India. Fully half of the world's extreme poor live in sub-Saharan Africa, which, according to the World Bank's 
own accounting remains very unlikely to make that great escape, which Pinker assumes everyone will be doing eventually. And, and that's just one thing. Uh, we'll return to that graph. We'll return to that graph in a little while later to show some other problems inherent in its counting. Suffice it for now to note that this one graph, note this one graph to be what most of the optimism is about. Because the problem for the optimist is this. Stuff like this. Slums. Slums. Talk about numbers. And talk about upward trajectories. By all accounts, this is the fastest growing, most unprecedented social class on Earth. All data from the World Bank on down point to the slumification of the planet happening at breakneck speeds. Almost incomprehensibly, a quarter of the Earth's urban population now live in decrepit and exploitative conditions at the edge of cities. Were an alien to visit Earth, surely they would note, take note of this. We're talking one in four of the world's urban dwellers living in squalor, drudgery, and danger, subject to degradation, violence, and poverty each and every day. No sanitation, no taps, something like 20 latrines for 100,000 people. Malnutrition, few if any clinics, and huge numbers of the citizens of Earth having to spend large amounts of their time and effort looking for what is generally highly exploitative work. Fully a quarter of the global urban population live without amenities the likes of which we would expect in these times. In fact, data and census statistics, as you can imagine, are difficult to come by for poor and urban slum populations who are often deliberately, massively undercounted. And inconceivably, Pinker leaves out that by 2040, all prospects point to 50% of Earth's urban population living this way. And that already, in the poorest countries, the figure constitutes a staggering 80% of all urban dwellers in barely imaginable conditions of poverty. Now, Pinker wants us to be grateful we're no longer living in the notorious northern slums of Charles Dickens' day. But even as the slum populations in the global south have multiplied exponentially, and even though any realistic hope for the mitigation of Africa's urban poverty has long faded from the official horizon, numerous studies have exposed how Formal job creation in much of Africa has virtually ceased. And while the African situation is the most extreme in India, the so-called miracle of globalization, where the so-called miracle of globalization has occurred for some folks, one city, Delhi, not even the Indian city with the highest percentage of slum dwellers, that would be Mumbai, Delhi alone boasts 10 million people living in squalor. And as horrendous as they were, slums in 1900 Dickens, England, grew only seven times in size over a 100-year period. Africa's slums, on the other hand, have grown 40 times larger since 1950. And that's just 
slums. <laughs> the poorest people on earth live in villages. And then there's child labor. While Pinker's, Pinker reflects happily and rightly on the erasure of this blight on Europe's industrial revolution, no mention of this very real and ongoing global travesty. Now, how else can an optimist attend to justify this but with globalization? Proponents will point to globalization successes in China and India, yet it was precisely neoliberal capitalism since the 1980s that catapulted such an unprecedented explosion of slums in the global south. It occurred when the IMF and the World Bank, together with the largest commercial banks, used, the, used debt to restructure these economies, destroying the prospects for so many displaced by the violence of structural adjustment. The international capitalist revolution promoted by Reagan and Thatcher and the Washington Consensus created a world in which the claims of foreign banks and creditors trumped the survival needs of so many people. With the removal of subsidies, import controls, the ruthless downsizing of the public sector of the world, sectors of the world, these draconian policies of the new, the neoliberal economic orthodoxy pushed not only the upward mobility of which Pinker and others of his proponents speak, but also the downward mobility of untold members of the human species living on the edges of the global system. Now, whether or not the slumification of the planet constitutes the most significant objection to Pinker's track remains to be seen. But for the optimist to argue successfully, they would have to at least do a better job explaining away the trajectory along which the neoliberal world order is pushing significant portions of humankind. With a, with a global population predicted by the UN to grow by another two and a half billion by 2050, glossing over this situation is a stretch, to say the least. Now let's get back to this graph for a minute. The makers and promoters of this graph chose to highlight the percentage of the world living in extreme poverty rather than absolute or actual numbers of people living that way. Now, after debating which one to highlight, the World Bank has been criticized for going with percentage, it being just one arbitrary measure and not necessarily the most salient. In emphasizing percentage, things look somewhat good, but when you go with literal numbers, the diagnosis is less bright, not to mention Africa. Uh, and while the hunger rate in this region fell in Africa 10% between 1992 and 2014, the actual number of hungry people has actually risen from 175.7 million to 220 million. According to the World Food Program, hunger still kills more people than HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis tuberculosis combined. This means children who have the tragic and dubitable distinction of being the most vulnerable have the highest mortality rate of any group in the world. Many are 
near or in this position as squatters at refuse dumps, street hawkers or aid recipients. And according to UNICEF, 22,000 kids die each day due to poverty and they die quietly and invisibly in some of the poorest places on earth, far removed from the eyes and the conscience of the world. And so just as many worried would happen, going only with percentage has resulted in popularizers like Pinker jumping all over it and celebrated the good news. Which leads one to ask, by what kind of calculus can one choose to downplay more than 850 million people, close to a billion people, or one in eight, seven people, living in extreme poverty, which is actually one of the highest numbers of actually desperately poor people the planet has ever seen. Because if you strip away the political commitment to claiming even this one graph for optimism, one could come to very different conclusion. But even without coming to any conclusions, absolute or extreme poverty, this definition means a situation where people are barely making it into existence, wherein the next meal might literally be a matter of life or death as the cumulative effects of hunger and malnutrition take hold. And the World Bank, here's the thing, the World Bank is heavily criticized by experts for having as their triumphant goal the ridiculously low bar of lifting as many people as possible out of this, their own stated category. And by this standard, the great escape from poverty simply means making it to, say, $1.94 a, a day. So how about these numbers? That the world now produces enough food to feed everyone? that food availability per capita has increased from approximately 2,200 kilocalories per person per day in the 1960s to 2,790 kilocalories per day in 2010. And still, at least one in seven or eight go hungry. But that's just absolute or extreme poverty, just which is easier to find in objective terms than the next level up defined as relative poverty, which is entirely missing from this narrative. What happens to the sunny picture when we include, by the World Bank's own counting, the fact of nearly half of the world's population, more than three billion people living on less than $2.50 a day? with one billion of them being children. Okay, surely labeling these facts as mere blips in an otherwise upward overall narrative is, well, non-complex, to say the least. And, and that's just some of the numbers missing from the data. Missing, too, from his historical and theoretical account of the causes of wealth and poverty are some stunningly significant factors and variables which really brings us to the, the heart or the crux of this argument, namely the part having to do with the Enlightenment. Pinker takes his cues from the Enlightenment here, from, from Adam Smith, who said, poverty needs no 
explanation. It's wealth, claims Smith, that needs all the explaining. Now Pinker adopts this thesis wholesale, claiming poverty to be the basic default of the human condition. You may know this one of Pinker's claim. He claims entropy to be the cause of human poverty. Even though entropy refers to closed systems aimed at a fixed state of equilibrium, how he sees human societies and all of history as a closed system aiming for a fixed state of equilibrium is, well, shall we say, a little lean on variables. Disregarding such a grand claim for a moment, and in addition to the mountain of evidence suggesting otherwise, the difficulty facing this view is this. Pinker never even fully explains where the wealth of Europe came from in the first place. Those causal factors remain entirely out of view. So where did all that wealth come from? And what does Pinker have to say about it? Well, he rhapsodizes about the innovative and calculative spirit with which Europeans made full use of the economic opportunities that existed for them at the dawn of the Enlightenment. Yet, inconceivably, he does so without ever mentioning from where those economic opportunities came. Instead, he reiterates the standard historical European arguments for mercantile capitalism expansion. You, you may know it. The basic version holds that nations follow a trajectory whereby they eventually become wealthier as traditional value systems are replaced by modern, enlightened ones. It's the idea of that societies evolve as traditional behavior patterns give way under the pressure of modernization. It bespeaks of a process of change towards those types of social, economic, and political systems that have developed in Western Europe and North America from the 17th to the 19th century. It gives great priority to the norms, institutions, and beliefs of a society as the core engines of social progress. And it views institutional and value changes to be the most important conditions for social improvement and economic well-being. By this logic, the most mature stage of a society is an age of high mass consumption. But what about those countries remaining poor? Well, according to the old standard modernizing discourse within the development field, which reached its heyday in the 1950s and 1960s, and which Pinker may have simply taken from his undergrad textbooks, these same notions held, but with a twist. Developing countries, they said, merely need to be exposed to modeling by the wealthier countries from outside through education, training, and the introduction of technologies and values. This idea implies that the lack of development is a condition that exists prior to development. It's the idea that third world societies are in the process of gradually moving towards modernity. Now, this seemed self-evident 
to many and continue to be so to some like Pinker today. And indeed, it is the core of his Enlightenment Now argument. But it ignores what most professionals in the development field now know, namely that the lack of development does not so much reflect obstacles inside the internal history of the countries themselves, but rather from the relationships they have had for centuries with outside countries. The corollary, of course, is also true. The wealth of Europe cannot be understood without looking at its place in the global system of social and economic relationships with the colony. For Pinker, none of this comes into play. The entire process for him is nothing but the benign influence in the developing countries of modern, more mature values and institutions. It denies there are forces put in place during colonialism that not only encouraged but ensured prosperity for some at the expense of others. It denies that as never happened in Europe, these people were forcibly incorporated into the world market. Ignored is the fact that land tenure arrangements, which had existed for centuries, were now displaced as rural farmers lost land to the companies, traditional crops which fed the local population were squeezed out by cash crops like coffee, sugar, cocoa, tea for export, local inhabitants unable to sustain their families through their own farming efforts and loss of land had to sell their labor for work on the company plantation or in the mine and that with, through the imposition of systems of law and order to suit the colonial administration, taxes, and the curbing of entrepreneurial competition, and giving of powers to local authority and chiefs, indirectly ruling by empowering some groups over others, who could do little to establish a more independent, diversified economy at home if they had tried, were overthrown, that this is how simultaneous, at least partly how simultaneous underdevelopment happened alongside the development of the North, and it's partly how those slums of the North got exported to the South. And these and other ways, the Third World was subject to an experience unlike that of any of the Western, Northern Europeans. And then, of course, there's slavery. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote, At the onset of the Civil War, our stolen bodies were worth $4 billion, more than all of American industry, all of American railroads, workshops, and factories combined. And the prime product rendered by our stolen bodies, cotton, was America's primary export. Missing, but missing entirely in this 400 pages, is any analysis of power relations, as in the power elites have in upper classes have had and continue to have worldwide to impose their interests on others. Rather, backwardness is to blame, or for Pinker, 
entropy, suggesting the conditions of the global poor is a result of a deficiency in appropriate values. It's no exaggeration to say that these modernist tropes reproduce an entire polemical history, which is simply the familiar idea promoting the world economic system. Most serious researchers, at the very least, have scrapped these strictly modernization theories, especially this classic functionalist view of the stages societies pass through on their way to being modern. It has certainly been rejected by most scholars in the development field, even the more conservative ones, for not surviving contact with reality. Nevertheless, Pinker's aim is to revive it. Look, of course the world is better in countless vital ways due to scientific advancement than it was 200 years ago. But if you start only from that position, how are you not indulging in some special pleading? If instead you start with from the position that we should by now, especially with the accumulation of wealth over the last two centuries, have done far more to distribute those gains more broadly, then the sunny picture of humanity almost certainly starts to fray at the edges. The attempt to extend the argument about science being an unambiguous good for having improved the human condition beyond a doubt, an argument with which I fully concur to the Enlightenment in all its guises, including market capitalism, is not only unscientific, it's dishonest. It does not follow that these are one thing rather than two. I, I don't know about you, but I'm prepared to say he's right about science. It is a benign force, despite what its critics have claimed. But to extend that benevolence to include the global push for market capitalism is, well, something else entirely. To express them as one and the same under the banner of the Enlightenment or modernity surely betrays a conceptual slate of hand. But there's more. That Pinker is willing and committed, above all, to his political view is evident in his willingness to make what may be the most extraordinary claim here, namely that inequality is not even a problem. Not only is inequality not to blame for global poverty for Pinker, not only is it in no way implicated therein, it is not even a problem at all. He says that very clearly many times. So what we're being asked to ignore here is that the world's eight richest people make more money than half, 3.5 billion of the world's population combined. His lack of empathy is palpable here. He, he even laments the media and schools for not more often telling the world 
which is largely poor, how good they have it. Over and over, in all kinds of ways, he keeps saying, good things happen to those who wait. How is he not simply saying to the world, shut up and recognize the benefits? Suck it up. He even sounds annoyed in the first few chapters that he had to write a second book to say it some more. He couldn't understand why the world just didn't get it the first time. The assumption that the world can and should continue as it is now is unsettling. We're talking about a small, rich world and a large, poor one. Not to mention floods, droughts, storms, epidemics, disasters, tied up with complex social and economic processes, millions of homeless, so susceptible to the extremes. The emergency for so many folks can hardly be relegated to the past, nor even with climate change to the future. The emergency for them is now, because the difficulty for the optimist is to explain how he expects, almost insists, we be cheerful when there are so many factors and numbers to consider other than the ones in a few select graphs. But there's still more, so much more, but I'll just mention a couple. Almost unthinkably, in the 21st century, we have someone of his stature describing himself as a moderate or centrist, and perhaps even more remarkably, being taken at his word on that, and then, with audience in pocket, framing the whole thing, like those before him, as the great civilizing process. Now, he said this in his last book, but he has never retracted it, de retracted it and as mentioned earlier, he expresses frustration for that book not being the last word. This is serious, and it goes well beyond any fun he seems to be having attacking left-wing professors in his books. We may want to consider the significance of what is being suggested here by Pinker, a fellow Canadian, in light of Canada's own internal history with these civilizing institutions, processes, and ideas. For what is being invoked here are the very processes by which Canada, among other countries, for over a century attempted to systematically eradicate Aboriginal cultures, value systems, institutions, and languages from children, no less, in a deliberate effort to alter the way these people came to understand and live in their world. Communities are still reeling under the impact only officially ended in 1996, the length to which Canada went until very recently to rub out indigenous culture and reality was based on nothing officially but the idea of the cultural superiority of Europe and its civilizing institutions. Are we really so desperate to hear virtually any eloquent defense of science and humanism that we're willing to accept these things or even ignore them? Look, it's one thing to defend many of the truly vital ideas found among 
the Enlightenment thinkers, especially in the area of good government and ethics, even privileging the scientific viewpoint is valid, despite what some critics say. But privileging an entire Enlightenment viewpoint in its entirety, whether that's under the guise of science versus superstition, or modern and rational versus primitive and traditional, perpetuates an us-versus-them mindset of the highest order. Yes, the Enlightenment did bring forth many great things to humanity, but how silly is the idea that they ushered in an era of human reason, let alone that we should nowadays reinvoke this whole narrative and its self-assuredness. If anything, the Enlightenment should be held up and pointed to as the ultimate example of the contradictions, the contradictory nature and fallibility of of human reasoning and the relentlessness of irrationality and ignorance in the human condition, the length, the brains of these otherwise brilliant men went to, to reason their way out of perhaps the greatest paradox of cognitive dissonance the world has ever known, should, if anything, stand out as a cautionary tale, because the very people who brought us good government, human rights, and the universal dignity of man, utterly essential ideas, worth safeguarding and championing and rightly attributed to these Enlightenment figures, were the same ones who almost certainly helped usher onto the world stage the completely irrational, erroneous, unenlightened, deranged, and unequivocally destructive idea of a white race, superior to others. How else to reconcile freedom, the Enlightenment's highest universal and political value, with enslavement, one of these central economic institutions underwriting the prosperity of the era. The biggest hitters of the era, Hobbes, Hume, Rousseau, Voltaire, Montesquieu, Locke, Kant, all believed Europeans to be in possession of a special status in relation to the world's people. And in particular, all objected profoundly to Africans and Native Americans. More than little paradoxical, the very term enlightenment itself referred to the perceived progress of reason and morality, touting itself as the age of reason, no less fueled by the promise, the optimism, that the darkness of ignorance was being overcome by the light of reason. We all knew about that, right? Surely it's common knowledge that Immanuel Kant, who gave the world the lasting and important idea that all persons are owed respect and ought not to be treated in humiliating ways, ideas which 
absolutely laid the foundation of all future human rights law, as well as liberal morality as we know it, also gave the world the incorrect but incorrigible idea of four distinct subspecies or races of humans with whites at the top and blacks at the bottom as subhuman. Talk about racial identity politics. Enlightenment guys like Kant invented the idea. And let's not forget John Locke, whose thinking not only laid the foundation for the American Declaration of Independence, but who himself helped pen the North and South Carolina constitutions enshrining slavery. How? By slipping in the idea of property into the mix of basic human rights, which itself is a strange addition which we could get into but don't have time to. But he extended property to include the ownership of human beings. Such are the contortions to which human reason can strain to justify the most egregious inconsistencies. But how else to reconcile slavery, which was so hypocritical that even they needed to do so and strain themselves to do so? And colonialism, which they weren't nearly as bothered by by comparison. Unfortunately, the refusal to acknowledge that legacy, that cultural legacy, is part of that legacy. The refusal to acknowledge we have a set of cultural teachings informing our worldview is as scientifically immature as it is to dismiss that other cultures have something of value, not only to teach the Westerner, but just something of value in themselves. For a cognitive scientist in particular, not to acknowledge that we're immersed in a cultural worldview betrays the human cognitive bias from which we all suffer. Because shared in his book is some of the very same irony as the age of reason. Because despite his own claims to have transcended tribalism, Pinker's ideas possess an almost shocking us versus them flavor. Leave you. There's so much more to say, but I will leave you in the end with this to consider, which is arguably one of the best criticisms and ultimate ironies of the pro-enlightenment progress trope, namely that it's religious. It's religious. (laughs) That's a major criticism of the progress trope. Myths of progress have long been criticized as secular versions of messianism. Not hard to place all arguments derived from just below, found just below the surface of the Western Christian tradition, and all end up being not so much about concerned with the facts about us in a purely inquisitive sense as with a utopia, where making a better world is tied up with making us out to be progressing towards something in particular. Because the idea of history as an upward spiral of material improvement or progress, a pathway leading to improvement of the human condition towards moral and material progress, let alone one leading all people to a lifestyle like ours, is not only ethically suspect and culturally myopic, There's no science in it. If anything, Homo sapiens survival itself has likely depended far more 
on the adaptive responses made by human groups to varying circumstances. If you wanted to put your hope into anything, wouldn't you look to the tenacity of those raised, scraping a living on the sidelines of affluence? Because if anything will ensure our survival into the future, it's likely to be this. This is surely this resourcefulness inherent in our species that will continue to be the driver of that survival. And any real hope for the long-term survival of the species surely resides precisely in what we're learning from the cumulated anthropological, archaeological, and ethnographic evidence and understanding of our species. It's the diversity of adaptive responses that, if anything, anything should provide humanity with any hope for longevity, which is partly why the loss of culture, skills, and language may be the great, greatest loss to our collective heritage as a species. And last, from the hunter, hunters in the Arctic and in the grasslands, to tropical rainforest, horticulturalists, to desert herders and pastoralists, that very diversity of collective skills and knowledge from humanity is what we should probably count on for the long-term survival of the last remaining hominins. Because it's a bitter irony that the aims, the reckless promotion of linear development and modernity, which drew its justification as much as for anything from the Enlightenment thinkers, has done more to diminish that diversity and seems to be overtaking it at the very time humanity may need it most. Because when we look to the future, according not only to a virtual consensus of climate scientists, but just in general, the only thing, surely, of which we can really be certain is that it will require skills to go where none have gone before. Thank you. <laughs>